Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Are you a backyard gardener? After listening to this week's episode, if you're not already, that may be about to change, especially after you meet Big Okra. That's the name that Jack Sweeney gave to his over 15-foot okra plant towering over his New Orleans backyard. We'll visit Jack and the okra stalk on site. But what made it grow so tall? Was it the seeds that spawned this Guinness Book of World Record-worthy plant? We'll hear from the man who gave him those seeds, Jack's dad, Neil, a Baton Rouge attorney who keeps his own garden behind his office. Then we'll talk with Tamar Haspel, author of the new book, To Boldly Grow. Even though Tamar is an East Coast gardener, she's got lots of wisdom to share. And surprisingly, some of it includes marital advice. Then we explore one of the South's favorite backyard crops, the Meloton, a local favorite that drowned in Hurricane Katrina and was almost single-handedly saved by Dr. Lance Hill. We'll hear from the good doctor before exploring the pronunciation of the fabled squash known elsewhere as Choyote with Mobilian David Hubble. Get out the shovel and prepare to dig into this week's Louisiana Eats. January morning, I was reading the New Orleans Times-Picayune when I came across a photo that really caught my attention. It featured Mid-City resident Jack Sweeney standing proudly in front of his backyard garden. Towering high above him, 15 feet in the air, was an okra plant that looked like something out of a fairy tale. The image was part of a whimsical article by writer Doug McCash, who had some fun connecting Jack with the famous beanstalk grower of the same name. While a picture can tell a story, seeing is believing, and I was eager to get a glimpse of the giant okra stalk myself. Hello, I'm Jack. Uh, Welcome to my backyard where I grew big okra over here. (laughs) Louisiana Eats joined Jack and his girlfriend, Kate Gotro, in their backyard garden a few weeks later. They explained to us the whole story of how the plant they call big okra came to be. Well, I see that you've got, you know, your tomatoes neatly in cages and you got a big pepper plant that's staked. Obviously, you are quite a home gardener. How did you develop this love? 
Well, it's definitely inherited. Um, you know, I grew up with my dad growing things constantly, constantly. Um, and when I was a little kid, he had me pull the weeds. So I resented it for a while and I resisted it for a while. But once I moved out and, you know, had a backyard, you know, the, the impulse was undeniable. And when the pandemic came, I had all this time and just, you know, couldn't help but use these bricks I had laying around to build a bed and get stuff growing. Kate loves tomato sandwiches. So the goal was to just grow some tomatoes so we could have some good quality tomato sandwiches. But uh, very quickly, I, you know, started experimenting, growing different things. My dad was always into gardening growing up. And, you know, when he comes and visits, he'll come with, you know, whatever seeds he's got that he's into or whatever extra plants he has that he needs to offload. And, um, you know, he started me off with a lot of these different plants, you know, tomatoes, you know, peppers. And then he gave me a jar of okra seeds. You know, I guess it was two years ago. And I only started planting them about a year ago, you know, in March or so of last year. So that okra crop went in in March, and now we're standing here 10 months or so later. Tell us about what happened here in the garden. I, uh, you know, I planted some like 20 okra seeds and, you know, some like 10 sprouted, and then three of them got to a point where they were, you know, big enough to actually transfer into the bed and count on getting fruit out of them. And, uh, you know, they, they were pretty normal plants. The other two grew to about six feet. That would have been, you know, last summer. So they were at six feet, and the other one started, started, just kept going. Like, the others stopped. And it made it to about eight feet before I was like, okay, this is like a, this is a, a special plant. And then, um, you know, I guess it would have been in November that the other two started to die, and this plant, the big plant, was at ten feet by then. So, Jack, I have never seen an okra stalk that's about the diameter of a broomstick. That, that alone is pretty awesome. Right. You know, I didn't have to stake it at all. It just kept getting stronger and stronger. You can see it looks almost like a tree trunk, like browning at the bottom. You know, like it's at the very bottom. It's almost at like my wrist, probably about Kate's wrist. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's really remarkable, um, and you you can see and you can see all the notches where there were leaves. Um, you know, the leaves were the leaves were enormous and like leathery. They felt like elephant ears. It looked like it was something from like Jurassic Park or like Land Before Time. It was very it was very uh, prehistoric looking. It, it just grew straight up. I never really had to hold it back from the wall or anything. It just did it. It just knew exactly what it had to do. <laughs> the seeds came from your father, who is quite a devoted gardener up in Baton Rouge, huh? Yeah, yeah, he's something of a mad scientist of a gardener, right? You know, I don't know if you know the R.L. Stein book, Stay Out of the Basement, about the mad scientists, uh, mad botanists that grow in weird uh, alive plants in his in his basement. My dad's kind of kind of like that. You know, he's experimenting with with fertilizers, you know, with different dirt, with, you know, different plants, crossbreeding plants, you know, he's he's always doing something crazy. Well, I never was one to take notes much, but in saving seeds, you always look for the ones that's the, that are the best, and you save the seeds off of those. Jack's father, Neil Sweeney, joined us from Baton Rouge via Zoom to help fill out the picture. So there was some reason why I saved those particular seeds, and I wish I knew, but we're going to save the seeds off a of big okra, and uh, we'll see what comes of that. 
So tell my me. First grandchild. Your first grandchild, Big Okra? Yeah. <laughs> Certainly the most famous. How did you foster this love of home gardening in your son? Because it seems to have worked. Where does it come from in you? And, and how did you transfer that love? Oh, gosh. I grew up gardening with my mom and my dad, mostly my mom. We take the wagon out to the cow pasture and pick up cow manure and drag it back and grow all kind of stuff at my house. And then when I started growing my own garden, the first seeds I was saving were flower seeds. And uh, that's it <laughs> because I had all these flowers that produced tons of seeds, uh, cosmos and something else and zinnia seeds. And we had loads of fun with those. Uh, the kids and I have a daughter also. We'd make, uh, we call them flower bombs. We, we, we'd make mud pies with seeds in them and throw them out of the windows when we were going on the interstate. <laughs> and, and some of those took for a while, but I don't think any of them are there anymore. But when I started growing my own garden, uh, you know, Jack was always interested. So, you know, I did, he just was interested in the things that I had here. So I'd give him some plants from here and he'd take them home and, Plant him in his little place in New Orleans. You know, some things grow better in New Orleans than here, I think. Probably okra's one of them. I understand you all are hoping against hope the folks from the Guinness Book of World Records are coming. Right. So it was probably around November that I realized this was a freakishly tall okra plant. And uh, I just Googled Guinness World Record tallest okra plant. And someone in Oklahoma earlier in the year had beaten it with 13 feet. So I, you know, bided my time, waited for it to get, you know, past 13 feet, 13 and a half feet might have been. And then I filled out Guinness's, they have a form on their website, you know, and drop down menu plants, drop down menu tallest, drop down menu okra. Um, and I submitted it. They said they could get back within 12 weeks or if I had 800 bucks to spare, I could get an expedited response in five. So I filled out the 12-week form. Um, and it's probably been about 12 weeks. I can't remember exactly when I sent it in, but it's been about 12 weeks now. I haven't heard back. I was worried initially that it wouldn't make it through the winter and the Guinness folks would miss it, but it looks like it's it'll be here for at least a little while longer. So I'm hoping that they, uh, you know, that they uh, get their act together and get down here, certify this record. <laughs> Jack. When the inevitable happens and um, big okra goes to that big vegetable plot in the sky, do you have any plans for preserving the stalk, keeping it with you for life? How do you feel about the potential of losing big okra one day? It's kind of funny. I like really didn't think that we'd get to this point where the okra is still alive and still growing. So... I had already like come to peace several times over with the possibility of losing it. So I'm actually very zen about it. Um, but <laughs> when it was at a more reasonable height, my plan was, you know, pull it up, hang it upside down, dry it out, and like, you know, coat it in polyurethane or something, make a walking stick. Now it's way too big to be a walking stick. But I'm still going to do dry it out and think of find something that will, uh, you know, keep it from decomposing and just hold on to it for a bit. Well, Jack, this is an amazing, amazing thing. I'm, I'm very grateful 
that uh, Doug McCash ran up the flagpole <laughs> on you and your giant okra stock. And I'm thrilled that we were able to bring this story to our Louisiana Eats listeners. So thanks, Jack. Thank you all for coming. It was great. And Kate, good job with the okra PR. Thank you. My services um, may become more widely available if you have like a really big tomato or <laughs> a really purple eggplant. Or <laughs> <laughs> That was Jack Sweeney and Kate Gotro speaking with us in their Mid-City Backyard Garden. And Big Okra's proud grandfather, Neil Sweeney, joining us from Baton Rouge. Big Okra made it through the winter and is still going strong. Those Guinness Book of World Record folks still haven't shown up. But there's hope. With a new growing season underway, Big Okra has started sprouting a few new flowers up at the very top. Jack has already begun his springtime garden, which includes four or five varieties of tomatoes, cucumbers, and of course, the offspring of Big Okra. You can find photos on poppytooker.com. Coming up next, we're joined by Washington Post food columnist Tamar Haspel. Her new book, To Boldly Grow, chronicles her adventures cultivating everything from tomatoes to turkeys in her own backyard. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. I'm Tamar Haspel. I'm a columnist at the Washington Post, and my new book is To Boldly Grow. In the prologue of To Boldly Grow, Tamar Haspel tells us that she's never been much of a doer. An avid reader with a voracious curiosity, Tamar wanted to know something about everything, provided it could be done from the comfort of her armchair. 
Working out of her New York City apartment, she started a career as a freelance journalist, writing about food and science for several publications. That's when Tamar met her future husband, Kevin, someone she says, unlike her, was a doer. A doer with a green thumb, that is. Together, the couple started a garden on the roof of their Manhattan building, growing tomatoes, peppers, and blackberries. And then I did a lifestyle U-turn. My husband and I, due to a bunch of different circumstances, ended up leaving the Upper West Side and coming to Cape Cod, where we bought this little house on two acres full of woods. And I started looking around to say, all right, well, what can I do here that I couldn't do in New York? And the answer was a whole lot. To Boldly Grow chronicles Tamar and Kevin's adventures as they adopt a more active approach to their diet, raising livestock, growing vegetables, and even hunting their own meat. Recounting tales of their successes and failures, the book is filled with practical tips and hard-won wisdom for those looking to cultivate their own food. Insight that Tamar didn't have when they first started gardening on that New York City rooftop. I didn't even think the building manager would let us do it. But I asked, and apparently no one had asked before, and she said, yeah, sure, have at it. (laughs) And so Kevin and I, we started doing all this research. You know, you see, oh, what kinds of tomatoes can grow in pots and what kind of soil and all this stuff. But then, you know, we went to the nursery and we asked the guy, Mike, hey, Mike, which tomatoes should we get to grow in pots? And he's like, well, that one, that one, and that one. I'm like, okay. But the lesson there is that there are a lot of right answers to gardening. There, and there's not one right way to do things. And if you ask five experts about it, they'll probably give you five different answers. And they're all right. And, you know, gardening is hyper-local and you do what you can do on your rooftop or in your backyard. And the best people to learn from are your neighbors, but the best way to learn is by just trying it yourself. Jump in, both feet, try foods you like. We learned we couldn't grow root vegetables. Um, We couldn't grow cabbages because the insects ate them, but we grow some really excellent tomatoes. We can grow good collard greens and just lean into the things you can grow and get the things you can't grow somewhere else. Well, your husband, Kevin, like this is the, the book is such a love letter to Kevin. And I really love Kevin, even though I've never met him. I wish he was here with us today. And um, you sort of had a throwdown with Kevin uh, on New Year's Day, 2009. Tell me I about did. that proposal you made. So oh, we had already started gardening. And I had already gotten a little bit captivated with the idea that food that you get yourself was like different from other food. And it interested me and I wanted to try other ways to get it. And, you know, I'm a writer. I was looking for a project. So I said to Kevin, do you think that we can eat at least one food a day that we get firsthand? We garden it, we forage it, we hunt it. And Kevin is wildly supportive of me and my career. And he has a total 100% can-do attitude. And he goes, not a chance. (laughs) And I'm like, what do you mean, not a chance? Who are you? And what have you done with Kevin? And next you'll be telling me we should read the, the instructions. And so I had to talk him around a little bit. He goes, well, what are we gonna eat all winter? 
And it was true that it was the beginning of January. It was literally New Year's Day. And, you know, I had a few greens in the freezer from last year's garden. And I had made some imperfectly set red pepper jelly. Uh, and we could go clamming, but that's about where it ended. And we still refer to that as our winter of shellfish because there, there were a lot of clams involved. Well, did you did, did you coin that term firsthand food? I had to because there wasn't a name for all of these things. And and the thing that they have in common is that exactly what we were talking about. When you get something with your own two hands, it feels different. And whenever I meet a fisherman or a hunter, foragers, gardeners, I ask them, does that food feel different to you? And every single one says, yes, that food feels different. So all of these activities, although they're very different activities, they have that in common, but there's no name for the category. So we had to invent one and we started calling it firsthand food. And that that that's where we went. I loved your tales, Tamar, about, you know, you went through the animals coming and killing the chickens and having the horrible experiences with the pile of feathers where once there was a mm -hmm. little feathered friend and uh, it turns into turkeys and just take me down that path, if you would. Well, you know, the chickens were our first experience with with livestock. And we did let our chickens roam free because for a long time, all of our predators or almost all of our predators were nocturnal predators. So as long as you can lock them up in a predator-proof coop at night, you can let them out during the day. And there are still some risks. A hawk might get a small one, and that did happen to us. But it's this liberty versus security challenge, you know, that the chickens like to go outside. And if you don't let them out, they're like, what the flock? And they put their little picket signs up, free range. And uh, but then foxes did move in and we found out the hard way when we lost, you know, I think six or seven out of 10 chickens. And from that day to this, we have not let them out because the liberty and security equation changed. But it does, even having animals that you don't kill to eat, sort of accustoms you to the idea of life and death in livestock. And then we moved on to turkeys, obviously knowing that they were going to die the Sunday before Thanksgiving. <laughs> um, and, you know, I take it super seriously. And I had to steel myself to do this. And, you know, Kevin and I really made sure that we understood how to slaughter a turkey, how to do it best. We use a cone and put them in upside down. And um, and I took that knife and I cut the blood vessels and it went exactly as planned. And it sounds like it shouldn't be so hard. It took a fraction of a second, um, but it was hard. And uh, but we did it well. And that Thanksgiving was was very, very gratifying. Take me down the path of some of your other food travels. Well, I think the hunting part, um, and that's, yeah, that's the last food chapter in the book, the hunting part was definitely um, uh, the hardest. Again, it's you're taking the life of an animal. And, it, you know, one of the things that happened is that each adventure that we embarked on, taught us more, um, gave us more skills, 
and sort of enabled us to tackle the next thing. And if we had started from scratch, I never would have gone to deer hunting. But because we had the chickens and then the turkeys and I had some experience with this, I really wanted to do it because, you know, I wanted, I thought that eating uh, an overpopulated animal that was doing ecological damage was the most responsible way to eat meat. And so for my 47th birthday, I got a gun and a crew cut too, but that's not really part of the story. And I learned how to use it. And it took me a long time. It took four years before I actually shot a deer. Um, but that one deer I shot, and it, it was small, it was a button buck, but my priority was to make sure that I had a safe shot that I could take with confidence. And I didn't care how big the deer was. And, and it was a safe shot. And I took it with confidence and the deer dropped with one shot. And when I took that little deer into the processor, it was actually, it was funny because here's this tiny deer. I put it in the truck bed and I take it to the processor and I walk into the processor and I got blood on my boots. And there's a kid, he's probably 19 and he's working on this giant eight point buck. And I say to him, can, can you take my deer? And he says, yeah, sure. So he walks out with me and I open the tailgate and there's a tiny little deer on a, on a tarp. And he looks at it and he goes, hmm, nice truck. And I'm like, yeah, well, it is a nice truck. It's F-250 diesel. We love it. But it took the wind out of my sails a little bit. He wasn't really then, impressed with your animal. No, he was not impressed with my animal. So he brought it in. He lifted it up like nothing. And while he was riding it up, I, I couldn't resist. I said, you know, that's the first deer I ever shot. And I remember he, he put the pen down and he looked at me like I'm this curiosity because he probably shot his first deer when he was six. And, and he looked at the deer and he pointed to the wound and he said, you shot it perfect. And it was, it was a real moment for me. And I know the hunters out there are going to laugh, but, but this was something that I learned to do. And to this day, if you ask me for a skill that I'm proud of, I mean, I've been trying to be a better writer for 25 years, but you ask me the skill I'm proud of, and I will tell you, I can shoot and field dress and break down a deer because it was way out of my comfort zone. The last thing I really want to discuss with you is that this book, it was filled with marital advice. So would you Give us a little bit of what you refer to as, for instance, competent spouse doctrine. Yeah, the competent spouse doctrine, and I know a lot of couples have some version of this, is that the spouse who is better at it does it. And, you know, there's always going to be some holes because, like, it, with all things say related to boats and trucks, Kevin is better at it. So I felt like I had to beef up my skills or he'd end up doing all the work. And then of course, we're both terrible at administration, but I'm marginally less terrible. So I end up doing that part, but every now and then the lights go out because we just don't get our act together. But we do try and do a division of labor that makes us both happy. and, uh, And we also try to have uh, areas where one or the other of us butts out 
so, okay, uh, there are lots of jobs that benefit from the two of us collaborating and, and, and both of our input can make it better. But there are lots of things that either Kevin should do or I should do and the other one should just let it be that person's job and just don't be a Beninsky. But I am by nature a little bit of a Beninsky. So this is hard for me sometimes, but I, I do try and do it. And it's funny because if you ask Kevin, what's the book about? He goes, me. It's it's about me. <laughs> it's kind of about him. And I, I imagine he li- he likes it. He enjoys the book. He enjoyed the attention. He does. Very much so. He loves the book. And you know, I was writing a blog with some of those stories and and he liked them too. And you know, Kevin and I are very lucky. We're we're very happy together. And it's 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 been a joy to write about some of the these things that we've done. If the food Whoa. thing ever goes south on you, I think you've got I can it. hang up a shingle. Yeah, <laughs> I think your marital advice is quite sound. So congratulations on the whole thing. Thank you very much. Tamar Haspel, columnist at the Washington Post and author of To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. Now that we've inspired you to start your own garden, should you choose organics? What does that even mean? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor and from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Should your garden be organic and What does that really mean, after all? At its simplest, organic means naturally occurring, unadulterated substances. So, in general, to garden organically is to use no chemicals. 
fertilizers must be all natural, too. That means it's time to start the compost heap that will become your garden's new best friend. Use organic seeds and plants whenever possible, and please, reuse and recycle. Conserve natural resources by collecting rainwater for your garden and avoid plastics whenever possible. The single most important thing to consider when planting backyard edibles is the condition of your soil. If you aren't having the dirt in your yard tested for poisonous materials like lead, you may want to consider container gardening or raised beds because all organic gardening truly begins in the soil. But oh my, the benefits! Medical studies show that children raised on organic food have a lower risk of eczema and allergies. Food grown organically has been proven to have higher antioxidants, along with more vitamins, minerals, enzymes, and micronutrients. For instance, organic carrots, spinach, lettuce, potatoes, and cabbage have measurably more vitamin C, iron, magnesium, phosphorus, and less nitrates than conventionally grown ones. There is a healthier way of life waiting for you, right in your own backyard. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Pelotons are a perennial squash that have been grown for 200 years in our state. A favorite for generations of backyard gardeners, the Louisiana heirloom meloton was on the verge of extinction at the start of the 21st century, but is now making a comeback thanks to the efforts of Dr. Lance Hill. Lance is the founder and former director of the Southern Institute for Education and Research at Tulane University. He's also a crop conservationist, a food folklorist, and an expert on the iconic squash. Following Hurricane Katrina, he helped launch the Adopt-A-Meloton reseeding project. In 2010, he founded Meloton.org, a volunteer organization and website dedicated to the plant's conservation. That same year, Lance joined Louisiana Eats on one of our very first episodes. Here's an extended version of our conversation, which began with him telling us how he first got involved with the Meloton. Well, I often say that 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 uh, pecans make neighbors hate neighbors, <laughs> oh. and, and melatons make neighbors uh, love neighbors. I had a pecan tree, and I hated all my neighbors because they'd come over and steal my pecans. Kids would climb up the trees, throw things in the trees. Uh, but my neighbor had a meloton vine, and I never had seen one. I was from Kansas 30 years ago. And, of course, it produced about 150 melatons, and there's nothing like abundance to make people generous. And so neighbors who never talk to neighbors show up at your front door with a sack of 50 melatons and say, do you want them? Uh, and so I tried them. I got their recipe for meloton pie, which was really a great way to start with melatons because it was sweet, like a banana bread. 
Uh, and my neighbor showed me how to plant it, and uh, that's how I became a melaton grower. Is there a way that you could actually describe the taste of the local melaton? Well, it's it's hard to describe the flavor of a melaton. Uh, it doesn't fit uh, neatly, but I use the term crystalline. Crystalline is often used to define wines. But a cucumber certainly has a flavor. It's not sweet. It's not sour. Uh, it's, it's sort of indescribable. And because uh, cucumber is in the same family, the cucurbit family, as the melaton, uh, they tend to have this kind of crisp, light flavor that tends to complement certain kinds of flavors to complement limes or in heavier sauces. Uh, and uh, it's just a question of how intense the flavor is, and also the texture can be different depending on the melaton. What is the difference between a Louisiana-grown melaton and the chayotes that you find so readily available in the grocery? Well, chayote and melaton are simply two different words for this vegetable and or fruit, and uh, there are about three or 400 names for it around the, the world. Uh, however, what we find in the stores are imported cultigens, varieties, from Costa Rica, Mexico, and Argentina. Probably the biggest difference between what we would call a local or an heirloom melaton is the ones that are imported are actually hybridized for what the industry calls for insipid flavor. They want a melaton, and you'll see this in a store, that's smooth, is not troughed, doesn't have prickles, uh, is uniform in size, shape, and color, and has no flavor. And if you bite into a traditional heirloom melaton, you'll discover that melatons have, some of them have tremendous flavor. Uh, so uh, the difference is in, in the, what we call the morphology of the fruit. Is the melaton native to Louisiana? No, it's not native. Uh, it originated uh, 60 million years ago in Asia, and then it spread as the continent spread. Uh, but they were cultivated um, in uh, Mesoamerica, in Central America, and it came uh, up from Central America to uh, New Orleans through an interesting route. My guess is, first of all, if we look at the word melaton, the only other place that uh, the word melaton is used to describe this vegetable is in Haiti, in what was called Saint-Domingue. Uh, in the French, uh, for instance, call it a Christophine. They'll call it a melaton some places, but the continental French will call it a Christophine or a chouchou. Uh, and so I think that, uh, that it has the name that came from Haiti tells us a lot. Second is that in research, I've tracked it back to references as early as 1840, being grown in Louisiana and referred to uh, as a melaton. My theory is that in, in 1804, there was a revolution uh, on the island of Haiti, and about 5,000 of the Creoles of color, the Jeanne de Colulibe, uh, had to flee the island and came to New Orleans and settled in what we now know as Treme. Uh, my theory is that they probably brought with them the traditional cuisine of the Melaton. Now, you have done the research um, that shows that our local Melaton really is endangered Tell us how you came to discover this and about your solution to the problem, adopt a melaton. Uh, the problem is that we didn't have imported melatons until about 15 or 20 years ago when they developed refrigeration techniques. And uh, people just got a lot of bad advice to just go in and buy a melaton in the store and plant it and would grow. And what they found is that that uh, doesn't work well. 
these melatons that you see in the store from Costa Rica are grown at 4,000 feet altitude. It's pretty easy to understand that at 12 feet below sea level, we're in a, a different environment. Yes. Uh, and what happened in New Orleans in particular to melatons, if there were traditional heirloom melatons before Katrina, they were destroyed by Katrina. Melatons cannot survive more than about 24 to 48 hours underwater. So the floodwaters wiped out uh, a tremendous number of backyard melatons that people had. And then uh, wind damage can uh, actually traumatize a plant and it won't flower, and then a hard freeze can kill it. So uh, our role was to identify traditionally grown melatons, do the history, interview people who planted them 70, 80 years ago, make sure they'd been in the family that long, do site visits to make sure they're not affected by disease and they're not using fungicides and then see how well they produce. And we're at about uh, nine at this point that we think are uh, have been grown here long enough, 100 to 150 years, uh, to uh, be considered an, an, an heirloom. And then what the growers have done is they donate them to us. I bought some of them per, with my own personal funds. Um, uh, but a lot of the growers would just grow, donate 20 or 30 because this is a project where if someone takes one of the melatons and grows them, they're supposed to donate half the crop back uh, to a project to uh, seed. So what we're really doing is reseeding the area around the state and the region so it's not susceptible to um, extinction. From 2010, that was Dr. Lance Hill, champion of the Louisiana Heirloom Melaton. say Melaton. If you were listening closely to my interview with Lance Hill, you know that the two of us pronounce it the same way. But let's consult some dictionaries to be sure. We'll start with the American Heritage Dictionary online. Merleton. Merriam-Webster. Merleton. Dictionary.com. Merleton. Okay, this isn't helping. Merleton. 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 To get the right pronunciation, surely we need to look no further than our own state of Louisiana. Gather a few natives together, and they'll set the record straight. So how do we say Meliton? Meliton. 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 Okay, the truth is there is no correct way to say Meliton. I usually just say Meliton. That last pronunciation comes from our next guest, who's spreading the gospel of Meliton through a series of videos he curates online. Hello, my name is David Hubble, one of the members of Meliton.org. Currently, I'm leading the Meliton Pronunciation Project. David, who decided it was time to figure out Meliton pronunciation and get this project rolling? Well, you're probably familiar with our good friend, Dr. Lance Hill. And back after Katrina, he started a project called uh, Meliton.org, and he was trying to preserve and save the old heirloom Melitons. And so as our website has really grown over the years, 
he commented that there's a lot of ways that people pronounce melitons and he would like to capture it on video of how some real louisianians say the word and so that's basically what he kind of tasked me to do but i took it a little different direction and thought well i'm kind of familiar with some well-known louisianians and i thought maybe it might be of interest to see how culinary uh chefs and uh personalities say it and so we've gotten some names like uh john boutet lola eric eli chef frank brightson author ken wells oh and then we, of course we've got maureen and spud mcconnell that's a that's a very uh enjoyable one that one just came out this week in fact hey melaton nation i'm mo i'm spud how are you we eat melatons we do we uh, like them a lot it's spelled merlaton but it's pronounced melaton melaton rhymes with smelaton no it don't it just it's melaton so we've had folks from different regions we try to do new orleans and lafayette and the river parishes so far we have almost 30 videos with about 33 people in them and so we have basically 33 different pronunciations uh even though they may sound similar i'm sure to the trained ear they could really detect differences subtle differences in how the different areas and individuals say it like undoey, for example, the word undoey, a lot of people, once they learn how to say it, say it pretty correctly. But melaton seems to be a word that just keeps getting a lot of variations no matter where you go. It seems like the two most common forms of pronouncing the melaton is melaton or merlaton. Well, if you looked at the ways people spell it, there's at least two spellings that I've seen, M-I-R. L-I-T-O-N and M-E-R-L-I-T-O-N. And it's basically a French word. And so since some folks aren't as proficient at French as they were years past, pronunciation of the word becomes more and more difficult, especially when you get uh, people coming into the area that weren't originally from the area. What do you find with people is the differentiation between pronunciations? Is it ethnic? Is it by neighborhood? What's up with that? I think it's more by neighborhood. Um, for example, uh, Julie and Vance Vokerson did a video for us, and they did a wonderful job. And they pointed out the fact how they pronounce it differently, even though they grow up, grew up in wards right next to each other in the neighborhoods. So um, that was a really good example. And then I find when I go up river to some of my distant cousins up in the river parishes, they have a little more of the French rolling of the tongue on how they pronounce it. And, um, and so I haven't got quite as many from the Lafayette area yet, but uh, they also have a little bit of a, of a different type of French spin on it. So I think it's definitely uh, geographical and I'm hoping to continue to gather some more uh, voices of the well-known and maybe even the not so well-known native Louisianians so we can continue to capture how people say this word. So everybody is welcome to jump on board the Melaton pronunciation train, huh, David? That's correct. If they send me an email with some ideas who they'd like to hear, I'd be happy to hear that. If you have anybody who you'd like to hear, let me know and I'll try to approach them and see what we can do. Well, David, 
I just love some Melatons, and I have enjoyed this conversation with you. Thanks for taking the time to talk with us today on Louisiana Eats. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too, Papa. That was David Hubble of the Meloton Pronunciation Project. To see the videos, visit Meloton.org and click on the link. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta. Handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily four centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, and producer Blake Longlinay. And to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.